Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Uh, presenting today, it is myself, John Reese, standing in for Jonathan Menges. And we are discussing today the second part um, of our two shows on Swanson, the life and times of a Victorian detective. Uh, joining me today, I have the author of uh, Swanson, uh, Adam Wood. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. And uh, I also have Neil Bell, the author of Capturing Jack the Ripper in the Boots of a Bobby in Victorian London. Good morning, Neil. Morning, John. And I've also got Paul Begg, the author of too many Ripper books uh, to uh, mention altogether. <laughs> but the key ones are probably The Facts and uh, one of the co-authors of the A to Z of Jack the Ripper. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, John. Excellent. So we're all here. Um, so, as I already mentioned, this is the second part um, of the uh, Swanson episodes. So, on the last part, uh, Jonathan discussed uh, all the Jack the Ripper and the Kosminski stuff. So, we're, we're not going to really discuss that today. Um, we're going to look at the rest of his career. Um, so, uh, yeah, first of all, um, did we all enjoy the book, I think, is the important thing. I, I really enjoyed it, personally. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've not completed it yet. However, as Adam as Adam knows, I mean, I was heavily involved in discussions whilst he was writing the book, and uh, I've I've come to the actual to to the part where he sadly passes away. So I've gone through his career. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me after the the size of the book. I mean, putting that. Yeah, the, the mammoth stars. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic book. It really is. It, it's really enjoyable. It's um, every every page is is you stuck to it. So congratulations, yeah. Adam. Thank you. Yes, yeah. and I agree. I think it's uh, it's it's a brilliant book, and I and I also think that it uh, is in many respects innovative. It's it's showing mm-hmm. what can be written about. Uh, a Victorian policeman whose lives are not particularly well recorded <laughs> beyond the cases that they investigate. Definitely, yeah. And I, I think as well um, that, for me, it's not just a book about Swanson, but there's so much in it about um, you know policing at the time. It's far more than just a biography um, for me. And um, it did become a bit of a running joke with Adam, you know, um, uh, Swanson book, you know, due next year in 2030 or whatever. Um, but <laughs> you, you can see why it, it, it took, um, uh, you know, so long to get to publish because the amount of detail really is staggering. So uh, well done, Adam. Thank you. So um, in, in the book, you know, it starts off with, um, you know, detail in Swanson's early life uh, in Thurso. Uh, and then going to London and um, joining the, the Metropolitan Police. There's, there's a bit in between that, but I think it's the police stuff is the uh, particularly interesting stuff uh, for, for everyone. But what particularly interested me is that um, he didn't exactly start off as a model officer, did he? Because he was in trouble a couple of times uh, in, the, in the early days of his career. So that that, that struck me interesting that he got so high on the policing ladder despite uh, having a ropey start, perhaps. Well, I think it was the, uh, probably the, the strictness of uh that 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 in those early days that Swanson had problems with I think the fines the fines that he he was in, uh given were mostly due to being late on roll call um mm-hmm. I'm not sure why that would be I mean Neil Neil probably can give some uh, insight into how regular that the the early recruits would have been sort of struggling with that um perhaps strictness 
but it's interesting that uh, I think Swanson was in, in the section house uh, at these at the stations, living at the section house as an unmarried constable at the stations where he was late. So I'm not sure why he was <laughs> to 20 minutes or so late, where he's always sleeping or, or, or what. I'm not quite sure. Um, well, I mean, for for a start off, especially in the early days, I mean, the police were very kind of, we uh, say, a militia organisation of sorts, but they did take the lead from the military. So there would be a degree of, like I say, for, for, for new recruits, a degree of beasting, a degree of, of um, uh, authority um, in terms of if you're told to be somewhere at a certain time, you will be. Otherwise, you know what I mean? It's, it's So it's, it did kind of take the lead from the military in that aspect. And it's all about building up character. So they take, strip down and build up again, very similar to the army. So um, any, any misdemeanour, to some degrees, is caught, is damned if he doesn't, if he's damned if he doesn't, to, to some, some degree. Um, so any misdemeanour would be pounced upon. Um when you actually look at it, it's things like late for, for roll call or whatever. Mm. There's no actual disciplinary measures with regards work or actual doing his duty, mm. you know. Sorry, Neil, I was going to say, apart from the time he was outside the, the Lion pub with a pint while he should have been on duty. Well, there you go. Well, that, well, that was part of the norm. <laughs> but... <laughs> but well, yeah, the, well, there you go. The, the, so there is, you know, the the the, the picked up on that as well. Um, it's all part of the, the 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 steep learning curve. Everything is done in uh, well, as Adam points out in the book, his misdemeanors come right at the beginning. You don't see anything for disciplinary reasons um, later on in his career. Mm. So, so it's all part of his education. And as you say, as Adam alluded to a few minutes ago, it's all all, all about coming to terms with the with the new life as a policeman. Uh, he he was uh, not that it would have made any big thing about being late for for, for work, but he he was more intelligent and better educated than many of the, uh, the 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 people who were being recruited by the police at the time. And I can imagine that that must have uh, irritated him a little bit when uh, with, with with the discipline. So you think the, he may have been in the section house reading a Greek classic, Paul, and didn't lost track of the time, perhaps? Or the pub. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there is there is that. I mean, you, you know, there's, there's the, like I say, the degree of intelligence that Swanson had, but also is there'll be a lot of pressure on him to be one of the boys mm. to, to fit in. So there's that balance, and it's got to be the sociable side of it, it's kind of combined with the discipline, discipline side of things. So yeah, you know, I'd say it's got to be striking a balance there, or probably thinking he has to strike a balance um, to be accepted. Would would you be seen a bit, a bit of a, an outsider as well? Because you know he came from you know the far north of Scotland, didn't he? Um, so he he wasn't English either. So could that have been why he maybe want to be seen as one of the boys? <laughs> Well, I, I think that I do. I do put in the book in the early days of the police how many how many of the early constables were non English, and, and I think that Benjamin Leeson writes that in his in his sort of biography that I include some quotes from. And I think there's quite a lot of Irish and Scots. Was is that right, Neil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of recruits came from um, 
uh, regiments, uh, a lot of from from the Irish regiments and the, and the Welsh and the Scots regiments as well. Basically, what they're after is big, strong lads. They're mm. after very tall, very physically in- intimidating guys. Um, so they'll be looking from from the military to recruit from the military, which, as as you know, the, the British military, we we do have the regiments outside of England, of course. Mm. So yeah, yeah, that's that's fair enough to say, yeah. And uh, I, think, I think his his big break came um, in eighteen seventy six. I think it was. Um, so he was at the time twenty eight years old, and he'd been nine years in uniform um, when he um, did, had his well, what, what we know as his first uh, taste of detective work. So, do you want to chat about that a bit, uh, Adam? Well, that, that's a really interesting case because it, I can't find anything about uh, what actually happened at the time. It's mentioned in a couple of obituaries. Uh, when Swanson died in 1924, about about this, but basically he was um, he was still out in uh, K Division, um, what is probably mostly Essex now. But he was on still still on a beat, and um, apparently he was crossing a bridge where he regularly would see um, an old an old guy, uh, basically begging begging for money. Uh, Swanson one one day did did give him a shilling. Uh, and I think that sort of be, it took him into the confidence. I know Neil's got a theory on this, which we'll hear about in a moment. But the the old chap told Swanson about this um, meetup the next the next evening in a local pub. Uh, Swanson reported it to the station uh, superiors and was told to go undercover to see what happened. Uh, did did so, and and you know after after several weeks, basically uncovered a network of of local burglaries that were being planned. So. I'm I'm not sure as a result of that whether he he decided well I'd rather be a much more exciting being an undercover detective or whether he got got um, the reward money he got for that was something that induced him but I I've got a feeling that any any policeman walking the beat relentlessly would would much rather have like a more enjoyable career especially if you're an intelligent guy like Swanson. Yeah, as as Adam alludes to, I do have a theory on that. <laughs> um, I, I do. I do find it odd that he kind of went undercover in an area that he p- patrolled. He was known in. Um, that 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 does is a little bit strange to me. But however, um, I, I have a theory that the old fellow that he gave money to was his informant. I think uh, a lot of bobbies, especially on the beat, would have the local informants. Um, they're, they're not supposed to be uh, officially recognised. They're not official informants, um, but unofficially, there would be a pot of money for which, f- from which the, these these guys, these informants, would be paid for information, valuable information. So I suspect Swanson, it, it was his snout essentially that, that tipped him off. Um, but it's interesting that he actually states he's gone into plain clothes rather than detective department. Plain clothes is like a bridge between the uniform departments and, and, and detective work. So it's for guys who'd be very interested in joining uh, the detectives. Um, it's it's kind of like a, a nursery, as it were, for detectives. So the department itself would observe these plainclothes guys and they'd be undertaking kind of menial tasks like uh, inquiries or surveillance, which is, again, what I think Swanson was doing. Um, so... Um, it does show that, that, that the fact that he's took it on and um, that he's kind of leaning towards detective work at that stage. He's probably been, what, nine, ten years on the beat, pounding the beat, which is physically 
breaking stuff, uh, breaking back, back breaking work, I should say. It, um, it you know, the, the, it's a very demanding eight eight hour shifts, odd hours of the day, so on and so forth. And and the, the romance of detective work, kind of going where he needs to go to do, get the job done, here, there, and everywhere, and also the financial inducements. It, uh, it, it obviously appealed to Swanson. The, the other thing as well, Neil, um, is that uh, 1876 was when Swanson joined the detective department. Um, I haven't got a date on uh, particularly on this um, uh, informant thing, as, as, as we uh, incident as we call it. And I wonder whether Swanson had, had expressed an interest in joining the detective department when this before this happened. So perhaps. You know, yeah. he would, well, this is an opportunity for you to try him out. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And the, the, the like I say, plain clothes is kind of essentially uniform men put into plain clothes. Mm. Um, and this was done, like I said, it's harder to do with um, the, the actual officer themselves wishing to kind of go in that career route, down that career path of detective work, or it's done in times of need when there is not enough detectives out and about the classic case would be the the Whitechapel murders where there's not enough detectives out there to undergo inquiries so they'll nab a few of the uniform officers put them in plain clothes for a week or two to conduct basic inquiries in the DOS houses for example and so they're they're the kind of the two pools that they pull from Um, but the fact that Swanson um, uh, does end up in the detective department would indicate to me that it was more his drive than than the detectives picking picking him out of the uniform, as it were. Okay. But that that said, they'd obviously seen something him in it because it, even if you do apply to do plain clothes work, you're not always accepted. You need to have something about you, some sort of skill, some some nonsense about about you to do the job. So obviously they saw something in Swanson. I was, I was going to say that they presumably wouldn't have just picked, you know, any um, constable. On the no, you, you, you've got to be, you, you would have been recommended by your station inspector. Um, he would say, yeah, he's a right man for the job. So, would, yeah. Would there be any special training um, then before he went into enclosure? Or? Well, to, to be honest with you, if he's conducting inquiries... Um, not really, because that'll be the, so that's part of the norm of the, the preparatory school um, training the three weeks before they do their their uh, in full uniform and they're doing the bit their beat. So it's something that comes along in their beat job anyway, their uniform job anyway. Um, surveillance, yes, there'll probably be a little bit of guidance on what to do with regards to surveillance. Um, but over the ten years that he was he was in 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 um, in a uniform. As beat <clears throat> officer, he would have picked up those skills anyway. He'd have, after ten years, he'd have been a very experienced police constable, which would a lot of what their work a lot as today is observation. They will be observing. That's what they do. They patrol even today, out on the beats or in the cars or whatever. They're observing people. They're looking for trouble. They're looking for crime. They're looking for potential crime, and that's no different to what Swanson would have been doing regularly anyway. It's just a little bit more intense. And then when when um, Swanson then you know decided that uh, oh yes I, I I quite like this you know this is better than uh, doing the beats in the uniform. What would the process then have been for him to join the detective department? Was it an interview or a? Um, I think it'd be a case of um, well he'd apply for it. I mean if it 
it all de- again, it all depends on staffing and and and, ha- um, and funding and so on and so forth. But if if the opportunity arose, if vacancies arose, he'd he'd apply. He'd basically write to, to the detective department and to his superior inspector, um, asking for a transfer into the detective department as was and later to be known as the CID. So it would be a straightforward letter, and if all parties are in agreement, he'd he'd, he'd come on board, as it were. So. There was no interview process of... Well, there was an interview process in terms of they'd sit down, have a chat about it, discuss the work and discuss ambitions and so on and so forth, um, as you would with any kind of promotion, as it were. Um, but there was no formal application process. That That's, that's again, I do stress that is um, plainclothes officers. Then it was the... Um, there was an entrance examination, though, um, from from uh, having a quick glance at the box. So what would that examination of uh, involved? Or was the examination the, the, the chat type thing around like a written no, 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 no. You're right. There is a, there is an examination. Mm. I thought you meant the the, the pro. Yeah, there'll be an examination to see whether he'd be fit for the for the for the job. Um, th- again, um, that would be a um, arithmetic um, English test. They would be asked to compile a um, or a report based on something that's written before them, an incident, a fictitious incident. So they'd be asked to um, compile a report on that. Um, just to make sure that their grammar is correct and things read smoothly. Because obviously reports are often used in senior officers' reports, but also in court proceedings as well. So they'd, they'd be um, tested on those things as well. But again, you've got to bear in mind Swanson had been in plain clothes for, for, well, for a period of time, certainly for one case that we know of. Um, so it's something that he would be used to. Okay, um, so thanks for that, Neil. That's... Uh... I think because it's one of those things, you know, when you read about the white chapter, you're never quite sure how they make the bridge over from constable to detective. So it's uh, again, yeah, it's 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 the plain clothes is is the, is the bridge. Yeah. Um, just to, basically, what the, what's happening is is you're testing as an officer who's in uniform. You're going to plain clothes. You're testing what life is really like as as a detective. You're seeing what you so it's a little um, trial, as it were. But also from the detective's point of view, from the department's point of view, I should say, they're seeing whether you're suitable for the job. Mm. So it's that little bridge between the two. Okay. Um, so perhaps we should have a chat now about some of the more interesting cases of Swanson's career. Um, so uh, Paul's been quite quiet, so I'm, I'm going to pick on Paul. Um, did you have any uh, cases you found particularly interesting or um, you didn't know about that you were more informed of now, Paul, or anything like that? Or I think the... the... The main one, obviously, is the railway murder that uh, that Adam has uh, has done, um, or not that he's committed the murder. He, <laughs> not to my knowledge, anyway, but the one that he wrote about at length. So I think that that was uh, that, that that was quite good because it shed uh, a lot more light <laughs> on that particular case. Oh, well, sorry, I was muted there. Uh, so that was the. the... Percy Lefroy uh, Mapleton. Oh um, yes, sorry, I yeah, forgot. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the second uh, murder on British railways, and Adam, uh, as I did write a full book on that. So, was that a particularly interesting case for you? I'm guessing, Adam. It's, it's. Uh, I think it's been one of my favourite cases for for a long time, even before I started uh, with the idea of writing the book on Swanson. Um, 
I think it's interesting when you look at uh, probably what what I don't know if the Wikipedia changed on Swanson's changed re, uh, since the books come out, but if you look at it historically, it's it's lots of misinformation, and unfortunately, some of that is from his from his family. But um, they talk about Swanson arresting Lefroy, um, and then obviously some other cases which we no doubt come on to shortly. But uh, apart from that um, and the Ripper, there's not much about him, but. I, I just was interested. I think I read in a, a long time ago in a book on railway crime about obviously um, Mr. Briggs and friend and friends Muller. And I thought, well, that, that obviously can you imagine how horrific that must've been when it hadn't happened before. What was the next one? And then there's so much in the Lefroy case, which I think is just, it just really sort of draws you in, you know, hiding the watch in the shoe with a little bit of chain hanging out. Um, and the, uh, the guard gives it a little tug and a, the, the, the watch pops out. Um, that sort of thing. Lefroy's um, character, he's put, he's obviously his personality and he's, even the way he looks, he's just a really sort of strange character. I think it just draws you into the story. So, uh, of course, when I started looking at Swanson from, in terms of the marginalia and the, and the Ripper side, I thought, well, let's look more into the Lefroy case and, and Swanson's involvement in that. Um, and, and it just sort of added more and more and more. And I just kept researching and I thought, well, there's just far more. I'd already, ri- I'd already written the chapter in in the Swanson book on the Lefroy case, but when we, um, I obviously had a lot of research material that didn't make that chapter, so I decided to publish it in the full length book on the Notable British Trials series. And I think there's there's some really interesting things in there that just don't make sense when you look at the the newspaper coverage and and even some of the, um, the claims in the trial. Uh, the actual facts don't don't bear out some some of the claims uh, in there. So it, it's an interesting case. It's always been an interesting case to me. But I think now, if you look at it in um, in its entirety, it's it's just something which I think stand standalone is is just something that's really uh, a fascinating case in in Victorian history. I also like the um, the, the Duchess of Devonshire uh, story, but with. Uh, Swanson apparently being quite preoccupied with that case for virtually the whole of his career and so much so that apparently he kept a photograph of the <laughs> painting on his desk which uh, which is now in my files I'm, I'm pleased to say I've, I've actually got a little note Paul on my note on my pad in front of me to bring that up in case you in case you forgot <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I don't want to disappoint uh, you but it, my <laughs> sole contribution to this discussion. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to forget it. I'm going uh, to uh, <laughs> def- deflate you a little bit, unfortunately. But I, <laughs> I think. Sorry, one of the very first times I met I met Paul, and back in the 1990s, that's scary, isn't it? But Paul was telling me. I think we were at the bar in the um, in the Alma. Paul at a cloak and dagger club meeting. And Paul was telling me that Jim Swanson had given him this um, photograph of the Duchess of Devonshire. Um, and it was on his desk at the time. I thought, wow, that's, that's fantastic. Wish I had one of those. Uh, and uh, I have now, <laughs> because when I went through the, the Swanson boxes of materials, there's, there's probably about five or six copies of that, um, which is interesting. It, it just lends you to believe that Swanson had, obviously, a number of prints made, whether it's been circulated among art dealers or, or, or whatever, I don't really know. But it, it certainly add, adds a little bit more to the Duchess of Devonshire story, I think. Yeah, but it, it was a nice, as I did did qualify myself by saying apparently. I mean, I've never been entirely sure that this picture 
sat on Swanson's desk all the time, but it it certainly came from his. No, I was, I was quite, quite still quite proud of it having come from uh, um, his possessions, you know. So that's quite nice. I, I think it's lovely. I, I mean, look when I looked through the uh, the archive, there was there was a copy. Um, tucked inside his personal dress book there was one in one in a notepad that he'd used um probably in the in the 18 early 1880s which you know as you know is only five years after the the theft in 1876 so it's something that he did have a copy you know copies of this uh picture on his person um might actually be worth telling people what we're talking about really because uh uh Obviously, we're, we're talking about a painting of the Duchess of Devonshire, not the Duchess herself. <laughs> <laughs> this was a painting by, uh, by Gainsborough that was, uh, was nicked by one of the most interesting criminals uh, of his day, with a, a man named Adam Worth. They trust an Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Worth is meant to have been um, one of, if not the real life inspiration for um, Moriarty, wasn't he? In the uh, yeah, the Napoleon of Crime, he's called. Yeah, um, I, again, it's one of those names that you you know you come across and you know odd details about Adam Worth, but um, you may not know necessarily a lot about him. You just read about him in passing a lot. I know there are books written about him, um, but um, you know when you discuss uh, that case again adam um you don't just say adam worth the point you you went into his background in a lot of detail um again you know just for people who wouldn't be you know who may na- know the name in passing but not know great detail about him well i think to be to be honest john that you know there's all these there's all these sort of not not unfounded claims but mm. anyone who's heard of adam worth knows he's supposedly as you said the, the potential inspiration for moriarty mm. i think even robert anderson called him the the Napoleon of crime or, or worse of that effect. And I thought, well, if I just, if I just mention him and say what a master criminal he was with no explanation or no background to him, I think it, if I was a reader, it'd be quite unsatisfactory. Mm-hmm. So that's why I went into that. And, you know, people like piano, Charlie Bullard and, and all these sort of people that Swanson, when he was in Toronto, I think saw piano Charlie about to do a bank robbery and pointed him out to yeah. a Toronto policeman. Now that that's part of Swanson's story. So, you know, going into um, the whole background of these people, I think is is important. Mm. But the Duchess and Devonshire painting theft is, I think, is quite interesting because, you know, obviously I mention in the book that Swanson joined at a time where Richard, Sir Richard Main was still the commissioner, and they were doing the cutlers training. And then when he retired, it was Edward Henry and the fingerprinting. So it really is a good span of the Met history. And I think the Duchess of Devonshire is quite good as well because. You know, it was stolen at a time when the detective department was originally uh, was still in in place before the corruption scandal. Uh, and in fact, um, one of those corrupt detectives, Micklejohn, was the first detective on the scene when the uh, the painting was stolen from Agnew's Gallery in Old Bond Street. Um, but then, when it was recovered, obviously in 1901, um, Swanson was the superintendent. Uh, who, uh, who who arranged for that for the painting to be returned, uh, and and actually in, in my research that's one of the, my favourite little little incidences because yeah. I obviously had the uh, the London uh, and the, uh, the the British newspaper and Scotland Yard files on the return, 
but the Pinkertons in America had been quite instrumental in having having the painting. Uh, well, obviously they picked it up from Adam Worth, and they they were very instrumental in having it returned to um, the owners. And I thought, well, is there a file in the Pinkertons um, archives which which mentioned their involvement? So I looked on the Library of Congress archive website, mm. um, and there is there is a, a Pinkertons file, and there is a breakdown to talking about Adam Worth and the Duchess of Devonshire. So I. Obviously, I couldn't go over there uh, on a Monday and just get access to the file. So I, I contacted them and, and, and they said, well, for a fee, I can't remember how much it was, but they, they scanned that file and emailed it to me as a PDF. Um, and it took about three weeks. So when it when it sent over was sent over, I opened it up. Very first page was was a telegram from Swanson to the Pinkertons, um, given the authorization for them to uh, put the put the deal in place with Worth. So I didn't expect that at all. And it was just really nice, to, um, wow. nice surprise. The first thing I saw was was from the guy I'm writing the, the book about. I, I like about Swanson as well, um, which, which is worthy of mention, is, of course, uh, amongst the various things that now almost forgotten uh, is the Jamestown raid in South Africa, uh, which... Uh, uh, had it not been prevented, would have sparked a war with the with the Afrikaners uh, in about 1899. Mm. Uh, and Swanson, of course, was uh, was instrumental in in uh, that investigation <coughs> and preventing the war. No, I, I think that's um, that that's right. But again, again, it's one of those things that one of those cases that is mentioned with Swanson's previously brief description of his career instrumental in in um foiling the the jameson raid as such and people don't really i, I think previously have understood even what the raid was or, or sorts of involvement or how how large a thing it was but i, I think beyond yeah I, sorry carry on sorry and I, I just to back you up yeah i i mean that that particular passage of the book was pure education for me so you're right yeah well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I certainly didn't have any clue who um, Jameson was. And, and it was a total surprise to me to read that he was the inspiration for Kipling's um, If. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's, that sort of thing. And then obviously I had to go and research roads and uh, bring that. But, you know, beyond even beyond the uh, the raid, I think there was there was um, a problem with um, potential problem uh, with with Germany as well wasn't there with a uh, um queen victoria's grandson backing up uh the afrikaans um there's been potentially preceding the first world war yeah he sent a communication off didn't he or something like that if i remember correctly can't remember correctly myself at the moment <laughs> yeah it was, <laughs> it, it was pure education for me that particular part yeah you know, I, I wasn't aware of it completely and the detail you go into as well, and you and you you have a really good uh, way of uh, explaining things with clarity, which is very beneficial. Um, yeah, so yeah, it was a very interesting passage of your book. Thank you. But but what I you know very very pleased with myself is I'm trying to present something as 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 important as the Jameson um, events with side by side with the more mundane. Uh, yeah. things, and obviously they're not they're not worthy sort of real discussion at the moment but i just wanted to to, to show um an honest account if you like of, of a detective's life that yeah. wouldn't be all these high profile cases and 
excitement stuff going on. It could be really mundane stuff the next, the very next case. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very gamut that they they run. Um, so yeah, they can have high high as you say high profile cases running alongside regular everyday fraud matters. You know, mundane matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so and the work would be extremely varied, and it just goes to show you the the you know. The, the, the wide range that Swanson has in terms of dealing with matters such as Jamestown issue and then the, dealing with regular criminals at the lower end, shall we say, of the scale. But I think even in, even in that, that those those lower end um, cases, I, f- I think there's there's some really nice little details that you can put in to, to give, be a bit more descript- descriptive when you're writing these things. And there's, there's, oh, yeah. There's one case which I I just like the image of where someone's been duped into handing over lots of money and he's supposed to meet meet someone at a certain office. He doesn't turn up and the, the police go in and they open the door and find the room completely empty apart from a half-smoked cigar on the windowsill. It's taken from Sherlock Holmes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to a degree. But yeah, yeah it's very homesy. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the interesting cases for me, and I've just heard it, was the Saunderson matter, the, the murder in Kensington. Which at mm. the time they thought was it eighteen ninety four? They thought was yeah. initially was a potential link to uh, Jack the Ripper. It yeah. wasn't, um, but but I thought that was a really fascinating case, um, and especially poor old Saunderson. Um, so, um, what, so trying trying to remember which artist was it that the murder was on the basically on their front doorstep? Can't remember the artist's name now. It was um, Val Princep. Val Princep, but there was another was there another artist as well who lived close. No, he was called to the scene, wasn't he? Well, uh, that, that area that area was was highly populated by by uh, by artists and Royal Academy yeah. exhibited artists as well. So, yeah, but but the, but, but the the guy that was called was was a court artist, or or, or a, a, well, he may, maybe actually been an artist cool. of sort. It's Art. Alfred, Alfred Corbold. But he, he managed he to do a drawing there. of the crime scene, didn't he? Well, he was a... Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's, he, a lot of his illustrations appeared in the graphic paper. And, um, I mean, the, the, the sketch of Saunderson that I use in the book uh, appeared from the graphic. And it's probably that it, it, it's likely that, that Corbold, yeah. who, who was one of the witnesses, actually drew that sketch. Yeah. I just... But, yeah, Saunderson's uh, name, I think, is, is great. Saunderson. Reginald Trahern Bassett Saunderson. Well, he's, I think his father had a, had, a, had, a, had a good name as well. Oh, yeah. Llewellyn Trahern Bassett Saunderson. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that makes, but as, you, as you know, Paul, that's just fantastic because when you're researching something and you've got a name like that, you know you're going <laughs> to find the, find the right guy, really. Well, yes. I've, <laughs> there are. I'm trying to find a John Smith. Yeah. <laughs> It's, that's one of the things that's so great about the book, though, is that you, no matter where you pick the book up and start, you come across these interesting cases. Um, I, I'm, I mean, the, the Saunderson case is, um, is interesting. Uh, anyway, you know, he, he escaped from an asylum for uh, mentally deficient young men, I believe. And, uh, that's right. And then uh, it's got the cherry wood walking stick and a particular type of knife used in carpentry. Yeah, yeah. It's a full, 
it's a full-on case now totally forgotten of course but uh, that that's good and and Swanson also then uh, I recall that uh, some of his notebooks were full of the names of of the men who were attending what uh, I think it was called the sods ball wasn't it that's right in Fitzroy Square yeah I mean so yeah there's <laughs> a variety in his career there what's interesting with that Paul is it yeah th- th- there's a certain black black notebook which has well, there's a whole page and it's, it, as you say it's titled men found at the sods ball um and then there's there's like list, a list of names and and but in other notebooks there's lists of names with ages and occupations and then you know you'll find on a scrap of paper there'll be another half dozen names um under the title sods um even in his even in his personal address book there's pages at the back which have lists of list of these men that have obviously the names have come to his attention and, and he's just scribbled them somewhere, um, probably for writing up a, a, a complete file elsewhere. Yeah. But that, although it's a rather um, sort of distasteful area, but particularly by today's standards um, and, and, you know, things that we look at today. Uh, and of course the, these people were, uh, Basically, in, in, in uh, Swanson's eyes, would have been criminals. And, and, but it's uh, again, it's an interesting aspect of of the seedier side of uh, of what a policeman's work involved. In yeah, indeed. But I, I think um, you know Neil, Neil and I only too well. Looking at that particular incident, obviously, although Swanson recorded all the names and the details of the people that were found at Fitzroy Square, he wasn't involved directly in, in, in attending the the house uh, uh, and taking those down. But it's interesting because you've got you've got a, a constable on the beat who who's uh, reporting um, people entering the house and then you've got someone sent to um, uh, do do surveillance and then you he goes back and does the report and then you've got other detectives go in and make the arrest. And I think it's very interesting showing like the chain of policing when they become aware of something like that. Yeah, no, exactly. But it's the, the, the basic point, the broad spectrum of, uh, of cases that came his way as he was going through, uh, through his career, as you say, from, uh, from, from the early days of policing through to what is more immediately recognisable uh, as uh, as sort of modern policing, um, or, or the, the the philosophies of modern policing, and uh, and he had this broad spectrum of crimes. So when you're looking at his at his book, when you're reading his book, as I think it was Neil said earlier, um, uh, you you know it's John said earlier. You you've got this real introduction to to the to the times. As well as the uh, the crimes that Swanson was working his way through, and you add in an awful lot of other detail about what his daily life would have been like. I, I think it's just from a personal point of view, and and obviously I had the luxury of self publishing, shall we say, because I knew I I knew early on that if what I wanted to do with the book, if I took it to another publisher, probably two thirds would be would be chopped out. Mm. Um, and to be honest, that's how Mango Book started, is because I decided to self-publish it. 
I told Neil, Neil said, well, I've got an idea for a book, and that was The Police Code, and it, it just went from there. So, so it's Neil's um, fault, really? It's Neil's fault that the book's so late, to be honest. You know, I could have done it in two years if it hadn't been for that that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk about royalties, by the way, Adam. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a, it was a t- if I remember correctly, we, we we were on the train, weren't we, to see Neville, uh, Neville right. Swanson at Worcester. And yeah. We discussed it, and um, I, I do remember recall you mentioning as you just said about publishing, self-publishing, and I think we were looking. I kind of suggested it as a tester, really, um, the police code, just that's to see, right. and that's kind of how it kind of went from with regards to the code and why the code was published apart from the reason that it was raising funds for, for obviously the metropolitan city of london police orphans uh, fund um but yeah that, that's that was my recollection that's it anyway. yeah that's right but i i think going going back to um to to swanson some of the more unusual cases and, and there's certainly you're right paul there certainly seem to be some cases which are no doubt unusual which came his way and i don't expect that was the norm for every detective but you know one the one that i particularly like it really was just a case of a threatening letter but you've got um, george drevar who who had these supposedly saw the sea serpent while he was a captain and and had a small one at his house when swanson went to went to investigate i just think that's that's obviously quite an unusual quite unusual uh Case, well, not the case so much as I say, it's just a threatening letter. But you can just imagine how Swanson must have felt knowing of Drevar's reputation of swearing that he saw this giant sea serpent <laughs> and, and, and seeing one in the, in the bottle. And, and it's quite interesting because in his personal arrest book, he gives the details of that threatening letter of arrest. And underneath features, he writes, The Sea Serpent Man, which I think is pretty, pretty nice. Yes. I wonder what he saw. Well, I wonder what he saw. <laughs> yeah. both, both ways, yes. Well, what he yeah. saw and uh, what, what uh, the sea serpent was that he thought he'd seen and uh, also what was in the bottle. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. No, I, I think that's, uh, that, that is not something that you read about too much in, in, in police, policing of today, really, is it? But, no. Uh, you know, probably because there aren't very many people today who see sea serpents. But no, well that's it. But you know, you you could imagine uh, uh, a policeman around in Venice going to see someone who claimed to see Nessie <laughs> with his own in a pile, But you don't you don't hear reports of that. But you know, no, there's there's that. Maybe. And then there's the um, there's the case where Swanson arrests the um, the captain of the the um, the ship, which name I can't remember at the moment. We had the mutinous Malay on it that they had to kill because he was he was trying to kill all the um, the crew members so, now, don't come across that too often these days either. No, no, that's right that's right but you know I, I think that the whole the whole the whole thing um one thing that neville had asked me while i was doing the research and by the way he didn't didn't ask me to um how things were going as we were going along the family he just left me to get on with whatever i wanted to do um and i and i and i i said one thing that they, they did ask, uh, never asked, because Jim, Neville's father, had, had mentioned several times that Donald had travelled around the world quite a bit with his job. Um, and one, one of them, obviously, was when he went to Egypt to arrest, to arrest someone. And I think that happened a few times where he'd gone to somewhere, Gibraltar, um, another example. He'd, he'd gone to places where there's an extradition agreement with, with Britain to... to pick up someone who'd, who'd basically absconded 
and gone gone to a, a country where there was no extradition treaty, so they they just couldn't do anything until until they made a move. I'm sure that's happened quite a lot, Neil, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it, well, yeah. I mean, it also seems to me with regards to that aspect of work, the the extradition side of work, Swanson was a very trusted man. Um, to to be sent out there, it, it wouldn't be regular detectives. You regulate, you know what I mean. It would be be the guys who um, are reliable, trustworthy. Um, well, I'm sure all detectives were, <laughs> but you know, Swanson had a particular way about him. I, I do. There, there was I can't remember which case it was, but um, Swanson came back um, with with a guy. Or oh, was it from Jersey? Or wherever it was, and um, he and the, the it was quite a um, cordial journey back. In other words, the guy that he was sent out to be to pick up was very respectful of him, and they, they seemed to have a kind of a a good relationship, shall we say? So I think that aspect to Swanson's side is is is, is underestimated. I mean, he's, he was described, I believe, in his later years as a jovial fat fellow. Yeah, that's right. That's but but it it does it does come across as as a rather a, a people person, shall we say? Yeah, um, which would be very beneficial in his line of work. Well, that that was um, yeah, you're right. That was Leonard Harper, um, who who basically was one he was wanted in New Zealand as well, and then New Zealand inspector came over. That but, was it. Yeah, Swanson yeah. went to um, and and brought him back, and I think they were as you say very um, very amiable. But it's interesting that going back to Lefroy briefly. Um, when was that? Must have been. Must have been almost ten years earlier. There's reports that when Lefroy and Inspector uh, Swanson and Inspector Jarvis took Lefroy down to um, Lewis for um, down to Cookfield rather for his committal hearing, they were they were sitting in the train having a quite a nice chat with Lefroy and sharing cigarettes and joking around. Um, you know, I don't think that Swanson and Jarvis took their job any less seriously, but they certainly no. were quite. Um, Easy going with 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 Lefroy, as obviously they did with with Harper and other uh, fugitives. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that that's kind of reflective of, of uh, police work today. I mean, I've seen it. Well, I mean, I work in courts, but when we have um, guys brought into into court via the security of either police, the rapport between the two is 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 very very clear, and it it just makes everybody's life easier. You know, it's, it's 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 really beneficial to get the other guy in a relaxed, you know, relaxed mood and you know, non-aggressive mood. Um, so it's quite a skill to have, especially if they are an aggressive person by nature. If 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 the defendant or whoever they're transporting is an aggressive person, to have that ability to di- disarm people mm. and and treat them as equals, which again does come across as, as uh, a trait that Swanson had. Um, so, yeah, it was quite a skill, and obviously Swanson had it. I suppose the other advantage of that as well is if you're dealing with um, uh, a serial criminal or something, you're a hardened criminal, they may reveal um, something else they've done that uh, you could use as evidence as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the rears are always open, as are the eyes. So, yeah, um, it, it, it's, it's a skill in itself. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that Swanson would have been a, a pushover or in anybody's pocket. He does seem to have a uh, hard inside to him as, as well. Um, I do believe there's, I there's, there's a... that. Sorry, mate. 
No, no, you carry on. Well, I was going to go to, go on to the story about the the accusation of him assaulting a was it a journalist? Oh no, I think what the this is a Billing, William Billings, well, where, yes, where yeah. Swanson had threatened to kick him. No, I don't think he was a journalist. I, I don't really know much about Billings' background. Okay. Um, yeah, no, he's, he's, I think he was just like a, um, the the Home Office file calls him, or the the Mepo file calls him the inebriated pigeon man. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I couldn't find anything beyond that case. I like to, we know uh, many of them. Yeah, the inebriated pigeon man said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think I must have missed this when I read the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was, like, was, was, yeah. was he the inebriated one or the pigeons? That's the question. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is the case where um, they receive a letter. Scotland Yard receive a letter from a William Billings complaining that Swanson had threatened to kick him with his foot. <laughs> um, and then uh, Inspector Moore was alongside Swanson. Um, I'm just looking at the letter now. I mean, it's in the National Archives. It's torn up into little pieces, which I don't know whether that was done by Swanson or, or, or someone else. It's in Swanson's file at the National Archives. Um, I mean, it's barely, barely literate, um, but it's it's quite nice when you can see these um, the Mepo files, Home Office files. Not not so much for the actual complaint or the or the formal response, but for the the margin scribbles as it passes down the chain. And they send it on to Anderson, wondering what, what response should be made. And, and it's just a little note signed by Anderson saying no reply, which I think is quite, it's, yeah. it's quite, quite telling. Well, well, that does, that does indicate to me that, that Swanson, you know, does, didn't suffer fools gladly, which I guess would possibly be something that comes across in the, in the paperwork, the, in the family archive and also, I mean, I know you spoke to, to Neville quite a bit, but, but from the family side of it, he, I mean, I, I've spoken to Neville. He, he also seems like a guy who doesn't suffer fools gladly. Yeah. Um, so whether that's a family trait as well. But, but you know, we, we were talking about him being a fairly amiable person, um, but also there was a sense of propriety about him, I think. That's my interpretation anyway. Well, I, I think, you know, you can look, go back and looking at the um, one of my favourite cases in the book is the um uh Lillian Stanhope who who was potentially be going to become Duchess of Somerset. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah. That's it that's a that's a great little case and a little yeah. little story there. But you know in his in his um personal ledger Swanson writes that case up and he's he's absolutely furious. You know, he no holds barred. Um you know he makes accusations about how the family got their property and there's there's you know suggestions of, of bribery and everything going on but you, you don't imagine for a minute that in his in his actual dealings with the, these people that any of those sort of feelings were were made known he's just go, getting on with the job um doing the investigation but while privately seething that he can't get any further with um with the investigation yeah compartmentalizing uh as, as it were that's it that's it was um as jeremy beadle always used to say Paul at the conferences, I'm sure you remember that you'd, uh, you'd someone like that would be uh, serenely going along like a swan on above the surface, but underneath padding like mad. <laughs> Completely yeah. different story. Yeah. You do get the feeling with Swanson that he was a a very straight man. You you he may well have had uh, you know sort of uh, as you say amiable qualities and and uh, and all the rest of it. But he was 
comes across to me anyway as the sort of uh, man that you could trust. I don't think he was uh, particularly inclined to be uh, devious. So uh, all the time, he, he he seems to be fairly straight. You knew where you stood with him. Yeah, that, that yeah. seems to be something that he picked up from his, his mentor, um, Dolly Williamson. Because Williamson, to me, seems very... They seem to be very similar characters, um, the, the pair of them. Um, so... I think to get on and to the rank that he got on as a detective, he would have had to have had those qualities, Paul. I agree with you. Yeah. Not so sure about Williamson, though. I think Williamson was... Uh, the, the likes of Williamson and Little Child and so forth, they were dealing a lot with with, with very devious areas uh, and uh, of criminals, and so I think they had to yeah. get, in the, uh, get down in the gutter with them. Well, yeah, to, to agree. I'm, I'm kind of referring to the fact that Williamson survived the uh, the trial of the detectives. Well, yeah, actually, co- comes out rather in in good, in, in good light to a degree that he, he kind of retained and, and moved forward. Uh, but yeah, yeah, again, I agree with you on on what you're saying in the, in the standards of uh, criminals that they had to deal with. Yes, absolutely. So obviously, the, the trial of detectives isn't just briefly mentioned. That happened towards the start of Swanson's career as a detective. How would he have been affected by that professionally, do we think? Would he have been under investigation? or? I think what's interesting there, John, again, it's, it's just a question of timing, really, because Swanson's, um, looking in police order, Swanson was appointed to the detective department two weeks two weeks before the, the solicitor, the London solicitor for the... Um, the French aristocratic lady who'd been duped by Benson and Kerr and, and, and the other gang literally two weeks before that broke. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that chain of events ended, ended up with the trial of detectives um, but, uh, uh, and the dissolving of the detective department. I think Swanson probably joined just at the right time because he, he actually hadn't been involved in any of that corruption side. If he'd have been there six months or a year earlier, um, who knows? Not, not because of his character, but because perhaps with the pressure of, um, you know, looking at Druskovich, for instance, who didn't want to take the bribe, but, but sort of felt compelled to by the pressure of Micklejohn and others. I'm just, I think that Swanson was lucky in that he only joined the detective department two weeks before the whole thing um, unraveled, really. I'm sure that with the uh, CID being formed under Howard Vincent, Swanson was, was a new detective at that time, as were many of the... Uh, the, the um, inspectors which came in, I think that really helped his career and pushed him forward because they knew that the um, detectives in the CID were were all trustworthy. I'm sure they had to be quite heavily vetted. When, well, when, when yeah, there's absolutely. There, there would have been a close close eye kept on the new guys um, because obviously the, the the trial was extremely damaging for the detective department um, in terms of a lot of bobbies were lost. Um, but also the fact that um, the, 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 it'd be under public scrutiny as well, which means that the government will be keeping a close eye on it as well. So, yes, well, I think Swanson kind of got in at, at the right time, as you say, Adam. Um, it'd, be, it'd be under uh, uh, close observation, um, and they only wanted the best. So, yeah, I agree with you, mate. I think it was re- actually reported that um, at the start of the CID that... All the officers 
in that detective in that detective department, apart from Williamson and John Shaw, were on uh, three three month probation. That yes. To yeah. prove themselves, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were on trial, as it were. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, not so yeah. severely. <laughs> no, no, not <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, yeah. It basically it was a restart. They swept out the old brigade and brought in a new one. Mm. And yeah, everybody was on on trial, as you as you as you point out. So yeah, um, it's imperative that they got the right men in at that particular point. And not only that, they got the right men in, but they were to be shown to be effective as well. And pres- presumably on a personal level for the detectives who were, you know, new in um, or had, you know, been newish when when the whole thing broke and maybe ones like Swanson who'd been in plain clothes before so may have worked to some extent with the detectives. It must have left a bit of a, a bad taste in the mouth of, in the mouth of betrayal, um, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To prove that, uh, that not everyone should be tarred with the same brush. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. But also, as, as Adam's pointed out, it's a wonderful opportunity. If if Swanson could, you know, could take this, he he, he could potentially go far. And by the looks of it, as we all know, he did take it, and he did go far. Do so you, it was a wonderful opportunity for him. Do you to think prove himself on, on that? On that point, Neil, do you do you think you know? There's you made mention of um, Swanson being Dolly Williamson's um, protege, if you like, and yeah, I know that yeah. was a claim which was made in a couple of the obituaries. Um, I was quite interested in that because that's 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 a big claim. That's a big claim that you know yeah. Williamson was his mentor. Yeah. Um, and I, I was just curious to sort of see what I could find to back that up. And you know, obviously, as you read in the book, with things such as um, Michael, Michael Davitt. Um, arrest in uh, going over to Dublin, and and then you know that whole the whole thing about the dynamite re- um, campaign where they were investigating that, and then moving on to the the bloody Sunday. Swanson seems to be working with alongside Williamson quite a bit yeah. in that in early to mid eighties. Do you think on that again? I couldn't find any any evidence to say, but I just wonder if because Swanson was part of this new raft of trusted detectives with the CID. Do you think it was at that point that Williamson was looking for someone to, to bring through, or do you think that, that came a bit later I, on? I hadn't actually thought of that, but it does make sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense that um, he's kind of taken Swanson under his wing with the long-term view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going, going back to Williamson, the fact that he actually survived the trial, in, uh, uh, sorry, the disbanding of the detective department and came into the CID and was taken into CRD um, does show a degree of trust that's been placed in him that, that he was a very good good officer and a reliable um, uh, constable as all constables of, uh, all members of the police are called <coughs> constables but yeah he's it very reliable um, but going back to your to your point yeah I, 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 it, obviously to me Williamson saw something in Swanson in the long term he had potential to, to make it and uh, he seems to be very methodical he seems to be very straight and honest. He knows when to slightly bend it a little bit. He, mm-hmm. He's he's also um, he's very good. And again, we'll probably talk about this later. The fact that he was brought into the Ripper case, he seems to be very organised in what he did. Everything was done properly and in order. Um, don't know whether you, that comes across in the paperwork that you've got from the family, Adam. But yeah. he does seem to yeah. be very methodical in his ways and, and organised which would be our ideal traits for, for the role of, of chief superintendent. 
I, I, I think it's um, there is certainly is evidence in that in in the archives. I know Paul has seen has seen the um, the so-called green the, fa- the famous ledger, um, which it's, it's frustrating that I can understand why that Swanson basically gives details of all the cases he worked on from around the mid 1870s, uh, but I think he stops in in 1882, um, and it's you know I know I know Paul and, and Martin Fido had, uh, had sort of commented that it's frustrating that Swanson didn't go up to off to the Ripper and beyond, but I, I just wonder that those cases, looking at the, the that ledger, the early dates completely coincide with when he joined the the detective department, and then obviously. You know, he goes up to personally for in 1881 and a, a couple of minor cases after that. Um, so he's almost so he's, he didn't he didn't record his his, his uniformed uh, incidences, but he I think when he joined the the um, detective side of things, he he definitely did record it. I just wonder if hmm. why did he stop in, in 1882? Um, I think it was 83, possibly. I I just wonder whether the cases he was getting involved with were a little bit more delicate and discreet and you know just didn't want to um didn't didn't want to have those those recorded anywhere possibly possibly i mean it's an, it's an answer i can't give but potentially i mean whether he's writing noting those ones down as a, a form of cv um mm. uh, evidences for, for for future promotion something that's a good, um, that. that's a good point so so whether he's doing that i don't know um Maybe something well, possibly, potentially, you know, the, as you know, um, the better you become in a job, the more that the, the, the bosses from higher and, and above, uh, more work they give you. So, whether he got inundated with, with a, a shed load of work and mm. he just didn't have the time to do it, or whether well, he just yeah. lost the, yeah, didn't have the inclination anymore, I don't know. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, he's not alone in in making these personal logs or or records. Uh, as we know, Aberline did something similar. Quite a few bobbies mm. do it I, even today. I mean, as you know, I work for Leicestershire Police as as their historical archivist. I'm getting um, journals and and scrapbooks from bobbies who who worked in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Usually about cases they've worked on that have come out really well for them. Um, so it seems to be a Bobby's trait of, of making these these records, unofficial records. But it's also interesting to note that Swanson <laughs> never wrote about them publicly. And he didn't produce his own memoirs or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, which again, as, as you state in the book, you know that it was frowned upon for for policemen to do that. Um, but it, it's a shame because it would have made hell of a reading. But of course, it meant that. Your book once have appeared, Adam, which would have been a great shame. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, so I, in I, a way, I, I'm kind I, of glad that Swanson didn't do that. <laughs> well, it probably would have been um, probably would have been Tony Hill to mine. Yeah, <laughs> he probably would have, as Paul pointed out, and he and he's um, uh, forward to the to the book. He probably would have pointed out that he had something entirely different for lunch while he was a city class. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, most uh, police biographies of that period tend to be fairly bland and uh, they don't obviously that wasn't looked uh, upon very kindly to write biography anyway as you said but they didn't get involved in in any in very much detail a little child could have written a far more exciting book than the one it did 
and it's something that prevails <laughs> to these people. Uh, mo most of the biographies are fairly, fairly bland. So I, I, think, I think Adam's book would still have been written. It, it'd have been a far better book. <laughs> um, interesting about little child paul because i think i'm i think i'm right in in saying that in the introduction to that first book to his autobiography he yeah. mentions that this is i think he says this is the, the intended first part so whether he's intending i think he was initially thinking he'll do a second part which would have been as you said more interesting than, than it turned out to be whether whether he didn't write that because he was told off for doing the first one, or, or just couldn't be bothered without it, I don't know. Um, yes, I can't actually recall that comment in the uh, opening of his book, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure you're right. Um, and obviously, I, I we will never we'll never know why he uh, why he didn't uh, didn't write the second part if if it if it was his intention to do so, but. Um, a lot of things would have been been quite interesting, because of course of his the prominence that he played in the the turf fraud or the Madame de Goncourt scandal, that, which the trial of the detectives uh, thing was was quite important. But it's interesting that of the three three he he says at the beginning of the book that uh, the three biggest cases or big big things that had affected. Uh, Scotland Yard. What were the the trial of the detectives, which is understandable why that was significant to Scotland Yard, but also uh, um, the Fenian bombings and Jack the Ripper, and Swanson was connected with all three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was he was there almost at the heart of each of those <laughs> big big cases from little child's point of view anyway yeah well did a uh, um, little child became a private inquiry agent didn't he he did indeed yes he was uh, in fact he was the one who was uh collected evidence against oscar wilde for the marquis of queensbury okay. Okay. so he was he was actually instrumental in uh, in in the case gathering the evidence against Wilde, which led to Wilde being uh, sent to prison. I'm, I'm just wondering whether, thinking about Abilene's comment um, as to why he didn't write his memoirs, saying that you're, you're telling the criminals how to commit crime. Um, and he obviously, um, I wonder if Little Child had something of, of that in mind when he became the uh, private detective, that he didn't he didn't want to release any more than he already had. Yeah, probably. Um, you know, we, we'll never know, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, incidentally, we we mentioned uh, a little while back against uh, about uh, John Shaw, who was uh, the superintendent, and uh, technically has a, a good uh, a good rep, but. It was interesting, going back to Adam Worth, the uh, uh, chap who stole the, the Duchess of Devonshire painting. Uh, he was very critical uh, of, uh, of John Shaw, as indeed was William Pinkerton, yeah. Uh, yeah. who were both 
uh, commented adversely on Shaw's character and competence. Uh, so it, it gives a, that little story gives you just a, a little bit inside view of Scotland Yard at the time, which which quite isn't quite as favourable as the impression is that you get a little later on. Well, I think that's it. It's, it's quite interesting. I'm just looking at the book uh, in front of me now, and there's um, a nice little quote which talks about Shaw, Swanson, and Williamson. Um, I'm looking at this in the Daily Telegraph uh, of 18, 1899, when, when a lot of Swanson's contemporaries retiring. And it talks about Henry Moore uh, leaving. Yeah. But there's one interesting little sentence where, he, and I'll, I'll read it out. He said, um, Williamson, the level-headed, was succeeded by the late Superintendent Shaw, a man who was credited with an intimate knowledge of the criminal world, but upon his resignation developed an extraordinary bad memory for faces. That's right, yes. Shaw, Shaw was replaced by the present very efficient superintendent, Mr. Donald Swanson, who was also a contemporary of Williamson. I think it very nicely sums up the character of those three, those three officers there. Yes, and I think, I, I think it was right in saying that it was Shaw who went on holiday and his house was burgled straight absolutely. away. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that 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 was uh, a criminal <laughs> taking a sending a message to Shaw. You know that you're, you're not so protected. Well, you don't you don't think Shaw told told him he's going on holiday for an insurance job? Well, he could have done, yeah. <laughs> but Shaw apparently, um, so the the Pinkerton said was that. Uh, he was noted for chasing chippies, which which means running after girls of low low character, as opposed oh. to, uh, to to fish and chip shops. Um, but he but he uh, he was uh, particularly noted for associating, uh, as I remember, with uh, with a a bro in a brothel with with a in the borough of London, run by one legged Nelly Coffey. <laughs> I. I just look at things. One one legged Nelly and piano Charlie. Uh, you know, it, it's it's great for real. It's, it's interesting you should mention that about Shaw because his son had a similar trait as well, and he I do believe he got into trouble for assaulting a maid, oh, uh, right. a family maid. So uh, it it, uh, <laughs> it kind of follows up what you were stating about Shaw, Paul. Pure allegations, obviously, but. Well, yes, it's <laughs> totally unfounded, but it does. Yeah. Well, the son, the son actually went to trial, so that is that's fact. But yeah, yeah, so yeah. you're saying. <laughs> it it always worries me just a little. It how many of our illusions would be shattered if we found out that Abilene was on the take. <laughs> Ooh. Um, so I, I know we said at the start that we weren't going to um, really focus on the, the Ripper case, but I think I think Neil does want to discuss it. I kind of want to discuss it a little bit as well. So you know, it's better. Oi, 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 don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we don't want to go into all the details of the uh, of the marginalia because uh, you know I hadn't spoken about that last week or the week before. Um, I can't remember what was actually recorded. Um, but Adam wants to talk about it again. <laughs> I, I, I will mention one little thing on that that came What's out that? of that discussion. I think I think it was Rob House 
um, was asking about other examples of marginalia that um, Swanson had written in his other other books that he had in his library. Um, and after after the uh, the recording, I, I went and looked in my files to see um, fo- the photographs I'd taken of those. And there's there's some interesting stuff in there. Uh, and I'm going to I'm currently writing it up to put in the next issue of Reprologist. So there'll be um, that that will be that will be appearing um, soon, hopefully, Paul. Yep. Go. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, certainly hope so. That'd be and, very interesting. Yeah, that, that does sound very interesting. It kind of put yeah. to bed some of the things about oh, why would he write in the margins? A- anything in particular that's just immediately caught your eye about Adam that uh, you'd like you'd like to mention as an example of something you wrote about or? Well, in, in the in in the other marginalia. Yes, well, yeah, what, yeah. What's interesting is not not so much, um, you know. Again, it's just further examples of correcting or adding more information. Same as same as he does in the lighter side uh, marginalia. But there's uh, one interesting little example where he 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 adds adds a bit of information to. Um, uh, funny enough, about piano Charlie talking about him. Um, and he signs signs it off DSS, which I think is interesting again because people have questioned why would he put DSS on a uh, um, on the margin there talking about Jack the Ripper, which sounds a bit seems a bit suspicious. But he's done exactly the same thing in an obscure case um, talking about Piano Charlie. So again, that that will be discussed and a photograph of that appearing in the article. And he also, of course. Um, uh where Anderson talks about uh, somebody who, who Anderson said had made a, a big fuss over a threatening letter. And uh, it, Anderson tells the story against him be, itself because uh, actually there was good reason, as it turned out, to make a fuss over that particular threatening letter. Um, but he doesn't say who it was that made the fuss and... and uh, Swanson in the marginalia says uh, McNaughton chief constable. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, there are, are little bits of uh, of marginalia, and you know, you just don't know how much other marginalia he would have put in other books because we've only got a few of his books. That's it. That, that, I mean, going going back to the the initialing, that's that's procedure again. That goes back to every single police document you yeah. either sign or you initial off. It's just just do carrying on what he did in the office. Yeah, he would have done that so many times. Yeah, absolutely. Just well, through, of course. Yeah, habit. Uh, there, there's a there's a letter still in the archives to his grandson that's signed your loving grandfather DSS. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just in case you didn't know who I was. Yeah. <laughs> How long until someone says that all of this evidence is part of some elaborate conspiracy that Jim Swanson has con- constructed over a number of years in order to, you know? I think that's already been suggested by Trevor Perriott, yeah. hasn't it? It, it was, <laughs> and um, I did mention in the, in the, I think I mentioned um, in the previous part of this, of this recording that um, when... Dr. Phillips came came down to uh, happily, uh, well, thankfully for us, he, he happily accepted my invitation to do further testing. Now we had these new samples of Swanson's writing. 
I asked him to test the marginalia against Jim Swanson's handwriting and obviously came up with the, um, I think everybody apart from a few expected, there was zero evidence to say it was written by Jim Swanson. When when the article came out, there was people on, on the forums saying, why did you do the test? You must have been suspicious. <laughs> there was some, well, I, you know, you can't win either. If oh. you don't do it, people ask, why didn't you do the test when you had the chance? And why did you? <laughs> when when, yeah. when uh, you must be suspicious. So yeah, you're either hiding something or you suspect. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's... But my my favourite thing was as you as you say, it would have been very elaborate because you know in, just looking at Swanson's personal address book, there's hundreds and hundreds of entries um, of names, addresses, dates, uh, different pencils. Now, I think um, all that handwriting pretty much matches the marginalia. I think. Jim Swanson would have to have been pretty clever to construct, a, you know, perhaps he did an advert for a Victorian address, uh, address book that he then put all these um, fabricated addresses and dates and things that he, he had to research before he could do it. And was it, was it um, Tom who said on the last show that uh, Jim Swanson must have been the best ripperologist ever who beat um, every other ripperologist in finding Kosminski uh, in order for it to be <laughs> forged or something? <laughs> Yeah. Is with with a lot of these comments that people make, I'm fully well aware that that uh, that that I can be quite easily duped by any uh, uh, sort of semi-convincing person. God knows Adam, for example. <laughs> but you know, I'm not. I I, I can't say that I, I I would spot a fraud a mile off or or anything quite so banal as that but I've met Jim Swanson several times I spent considerable time uh, on one occasion um, at his home just chatting quite happily over a, 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 a can of lager and you know you kind of get a feeling for people and it's so easy on the internet to say oh, so-and-so was a liar, or so-and-so did this, or yeah. how do you know that so-and-so didn't do that? When you know the person, when you meet the person, when you have several links with that person, you do stand back just a little bit and think to yourself, well, I don't think he would have done that. And it's like you said about, about, um, about his son, uh, not a man that suffers fools gladly. Well, I, I can attest to that he's uh, you know they these were not these are not people who are out to deceive there was no evidence of that at all that came across to to, to martin or myself when uh, when we met met them and obviously not to to adam or to you or anybody else who's come in contact with them either absolutely yeah and uh did anyone else want to say anything about swanson's involvement in the uh Rip a case or anything like that, or discuss anything. Well, there was, there was. It's just an add-on, really. It's not really. Sorry to say this, Adam. It's not really Swanson's involvement, but it's the, it's the discussion that happened in the previous episode regarding the uh, all-round surveillance. Um, the the was it the city police kept um, whoever the suspect was under constant surveillance. Blah blah blah. Yeah, I I had a chat with uh, former Leicestershire Chief Superintendent Jeff Fevior about you know what would it, how would such should an operation be conducted, how, what would 
the logistics be? What what would you guys have to do? And Jeff came back with something quite interesting. He said, first of all, it'd be a massive job to, to undergo constant surveillance of a person. Um, it, now, the, there's two types, obviously. There's overt and covert, but let's go with the, the um, covert for now. Um, uh, it could take up to between 18 to 20 men um, on the job at, uh, at one time, which then would mean you've probably got to triple it for the shift work, the pay work, you know, the fact that these guys have got to go to bed the next day and, and you know, and, and have rest uh, as well. Um, it would be a massive, massive job, which would cost an absolute fortune. He said probably what they mean is that it was a, um overt observation. So it'd be guys in uniform on the beat, probably keep an observation on this person um but i just thought i'd, I'd ask a modern police policeman's view of that and it was quite yeah. interesting it kind of backed up what was said about finances and how big a job it would have been at the time uh sorry uh, during the last the last um um episode that, that you recorded um but that, that's just my 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 tuppence worth on that one um it, it would have been a huge job to conduct constant observation on on an, a a particular suspect, especially during a period where I I suspect that there'd be lots of suspects equally un, uh, under suspicion. <clears throat> that's like I said, that's just my five penny worth. And uh, yeah, just um, my my thoughts on that as well. Um, so I was um recently reading a book written by a former um, MI5 operative and uh, they you know he was saying in the mod even in the modern day um, most people who are on watch lists or terror suspects they can't be watched 24 7 just purely because of the resources it takes um, yeah, yeah so yeah it's uh, I, I think I agree with Neil's um, uh, assessment there. I think, uh, yeah. I think it most likely be a, a public mix of covert and overt. So you you've got the the, the the covert stuff where they can, but obviously the the the, the, the overt stuff is 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 when they they've not got the resources for guys to conduct undercover surveillance. So it'd be beat bobbies or or you know in passing you know going past the house just making sure you know so on and so forth so i think it'd probably be a mix but no way could there be a constant surveillance of a suspect what do you think in that case then neil um swanson writes in the marginalia that the when when the suspects returned to whitechapel he was he was watched night and day by the ccid how do you think that that reconciles I think that's a bold statement, Adam. To be honest with yeah. you, it depends it on where it depends. It depends on where they're watching him. Yeah, if he's in 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 a hospital and an asylum, then it would be a lot easier. True. I must admit. So it all depends on the location of yeah. of you know how he could even be in in custody for whatever another misdemeanor or whatever. Um, mm. So it all depends on the location. Uh, but it's a hell of a statement well, to make. Well, it, it is. It is. I mean, obviously, he, he, says, he says that he was at um, it was at his brother's house in Whitechapel, watch night and day in a very short time. Now, yeah. you know, if if the surveillance was, I don't know, a short time being two or three days, even, yeah, for for example, would they be have the resources to do a a, a, person, you know, a constant observation for a short time like that? Um. <laughs> They probably would have the resources, but it'd be a big operation to do. Unless they uh, were but very, de- very sure that it was 
it was but, person they should be looking at. Yeah, exactly. And also the fact that um, it would help if they knew that he's only he's staying there and he's not moving around and he's not, you know, yeah. relocating yeah. to another property. So if he's constantly there, whether it be bedridden or, or, or he's been told to stay under house arrest, shall we say, for the want of a better word, yeah, phrase. Um, so, yeah, it could be done for like that. Um, I'll just bring it up because, it's, you know, the, the, the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with uh, John and Rob was how long how long was that observation going on for because yeah you know, was he identified and then three years later went to coley hatch which some people have mm. said is it realistic you know that that observation would have taken for that amount of time without any action being taken no no, no, no. that the statement uh, is quite clear that uh there, there is no indication in anything that swanson says that uh the time between being returned to his brother's house and then being taken off to the uh to the asylum what was any great interval of time involved in that at all mm. Mm. i mean we know obviously it's a, there was a note if he states night and day then there's obviously over 24 hours worth of observation yeah. been conducted as adam says you know could that be three days three weeks whatever we don't know but it, it, the fact that it's a short time it could be done for a short time which backs up basically swanson's statement so it could have, be done for a short time you have a couple of other ref, uh, examples elsewhere of things being uh, kept on watches where one is uh, cox for example uh, who's uh, maintaining a surveillance over uh, Jewish sweating factories. Yeah, yeah. And you have, um, what's his name, is it White, although it's a, a, a loose-up <laughs> where there was just a, uh, a policeman stationed at one end and the other end of an alley, and yeah. somebody came through. So they, you know, it would appear that they yeah. did require a, a big... Operation just somebody stuck outside the house for 24 hours or 12 hours shift. Yeah. Well, that also kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about Swanson's early role in, in, in as a detective, or how he, he became a detective, and that that a lot of that work would be undertaken by plain clothes policemen. So you've got uniformed men in plain clothes, just because all they need to be doing is watching, and that's it. That would be a classic example of the work that they would be undertaking. So. It, whilst the, we've mentioned resources and funding and so on and so forth, for a short period of time, uniformed men will be commandeered, placed into plain clothed, and told to watch a square, a house, or whatever, for a few days, um, basically to record, because it's evidence gathering, uh, basically is to record the comings and goings and what's happening there. Um, you know, whether it be a van delivery, take a note of the company that delivered and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, so so it would be an information gathering exercise. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was done. It's just the period of time. We don't really know uh, anything about the, the set of circumstances that led to this event taking place because... That's right. Um, Swanson certainly gives the impression that we're dealing with something that was absolutely out of the ordinary in as much as the suspect was sent, he wasn't taken by the police, he was sent somewhere by the police. Uh, so it may have involved, that may have involved with the suspect being uh, accompanied 
by his family, therefore members of his family would presumably have known about the positive eyewitness identification. Um, what then happened, oh, quite, quite obviously, is that the family very quickly had him committed and put out of the way of everybody. So there was no way that the police reasonably would then have gone and arrested him and gone through the trouble of putting a court case, which would have probably just had him sent straight back as unfit to plead. Mm. Well, that, that, would, that would all hinge on what evidence they've got anyway. Well, yeah, but obviously they didn't have sufficient evidence to hold him, because that's why they let him go. Well, yeah, yeah, there would have been sufficient evidence for suspicion. Yeah, absolutely. But they returned him to his brother's house where, Swanson says, in a very short time. That's not three years, two years, or even two yeah. weeks. It's probably yeah. a matter of days, just long enough for the family to have figured out what had happened, think, oh, my God, we don't get stuck with this publicity, and yeah. whack it away. Yeah, that makes the most sense to me as well. The other thing is that they may have only done surveillance of what the police considered high-risk times. Um, so, you know, with all the murders being committed on or near the weekend and, you know, during certain hours, you know, the police wouldn't necessarily have decided there's any point watching at, you know, two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, it may have just been, you know, Friday from sunset until sunrise. Again, we're all back to definition of mm. round-the-clock surveillance, to, you know, well, and short yeah, periods it. of time. But, but, but Paul, Paul brought up... Um, Henry Cox, and, and he, I think he writes that he was on, he was on conducting the surveillance on this chap for three months. So I can't imagine it was just Cox himself, three months solid, uh, on on in, in the post watching this this one particular no. suspect. So, but it'd be it'd probably be Cox's job to organise. Yeah, so it would have been. A, you think it would have been a team of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Officers, men, yeah. men under his command. Yeah. Um, yeah. To to so it'd be Cox's responsibility to conduct it how we deemed fit. Um, so yeah, that's my interpretation. But it still doesn't necessarily mean that there would be a full team of twenty or more policemen, particularly in those days where they they were not sort of uh, given the they weren't molly coddled. <laughs> not that they are today, but I couldn't think of another word. It's so they, 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 were, they were put under more pressure. Well, a lot of it boils down to finances as well. So, as it does so, the entire... Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, some, some, some things don't change. No. Yeah. Okay, anything else to add on the, the Ripper stuff then, gents? Nah, I'm bored with that now. In the book or anything else in the book you want to discuss, anyone? Well, I'm just intri intrigued, Adam, with regards to your research. I mean, if you could go through, I know you did in the previous episode, but if you could go through, I mean, you obtained um, the, the private paperwork of, of Donald Thompson via the family, yeah. Um, so how, how did you kind of, again, listening to the other show, it kind of came in in a fairly disorganised way. Um, how did you kind of conduct your research? What did you, you know, what, what basically well, how, how did you go, go about it? After I'd, um, it all started off because I was writing the article on the marginalia for Ripperologists. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't, I can't remember if it was Keith or Paul basically said, would you know, while I was doing that, would I like to speak to the family? Um, and obviously said yes. I, and I met Neville, as you know, didn't live too far from me at the time. So we met for lunch and, you know, he said, well, I've got this 
a massive, massive um, family archive material, would you like to see it? And of course, 99% of it wasn't relevant at all to the marginalia. And I'm, but I kept in touch with Neville and I said, well, I'd like, you know, can, can we have a look at it? Can I have a look at it after the article's published? Um, and we met up for lunch again and he gave me a sample, I think a Tesco carrier bag <laughs> full of original. Yeah. That, that is Neville. Um, but when I was looking through it, there, there's just some amazing material there that I think nobody nobody knew about. Not even the family. They didn't really know what they what? got. What and what, the, the first thing I sorry, mate, sorry. Carry on. no, carry on. I was going to say, the, so the, the first thing I did is, is basically I, I met Neville at regular intervals and he gave me all this material, uh, not in one go. He might give me a couple of boxes or, or um, a couple of bags of things. I'd take them away, photograph everything. We'd meet up the next time. We'd swap over for a different box until eventually um, the, whole, the whole lot. I've, I've got a photograph. I mean, probably 99.9% of what appears in the book um, uh, uh, what I've got rather in the archive in terms of photography isn't is relevant to go in the book, but it is the whole the whole of the families right right back from uh, Swanson's early de- early days, and you know his, his his testimonial letter from his previous headmaster, for instance, has still been retained. So they've just kept everything, and it goes right up to the um, the mortgage details for Presburg Road um, yeah. details of Julia Julia Nev- uh, Julian Neville's. Um, grave plot all this stuff yeah. is still there and they don't you know the Swanson family don't know what they've got they've just basically kept it all and, and moved it around from one place to the other yeah. so what first thing but, I did was to literally log everything in a chronological yeah. order so I've got an Excel spreadsheet and um, I've logged everything in date order um, all these cases things are happening in his personal life uh, and once I looked at that I could see there was a lot of overlap with with um you know certain cases or you know you'll see things in the book you know swanson might be he got married but two days later he had to go and arrest someone and in two days after that he was in court giving evidence and then and then they went then they went away on honeymoon i think a, a yeah, month later yeah. so when you look at the chronology spreadsheet you could see all this stuff was going on and it was that really was what gave me the idea to make the book oh, wow. not a series of cases yeah. um but an overlapping story because yeah. you know talking about personal Roy Mapleton, he's he's executed at Lewis Jail on one day, and two days later, you know, the next chapter is about the the uh, theft of the Earl of Crawford's body. That happened yeah. two days later, and I thought, well, you know, you can't give, make a hard hard fast end to a chapter and go on to the next story. These things did happen, yeah. um, and and basically the reason why I decided to really go into the the background of the Metropolitan Police, the sort of um, background story to Swanson's career, um, was because obviously, you know, as we all know, everyone listening to this will know, there's lots of changes in Commissioner, Assistant Commissioner during the Ripper investigation. And I, and, and I thought, well, it's not, I've got to describe that, but it's not going to make any sense if I'm talking about Henderson being the Commissioner. Uh, mm-hmm. And then two chapters later, suddenly it's somebody else. And you've got these different assistant commissioners being named with no explanation as to how and when all that thing changed. So I thought, well, I've got to describe that. And then when I looked at Swanson's application um, to the to the Met, why did he respond? And then I looked at, oh, it was in response to the advert for the Fenian threat. Well, I've got to look into that. So yeah. it, it really sort of evolved. I didn't initially plan to write it the way that it ended out. Um, 
but it, it was just a case that right as i say looking right back at that chronology it was just obvious there was so much overlap in what was going on it really was a life rather than a, a black yeah. and white case book yeah it certainly reads like that um going back to the cases though um was there a lot of information regarding specific cases and how did how how did that kind of manifest were they i mean going going to my work with the lesser police i get i come across um or rather handed into me files with official reports they're under official reports so are there any yeah. kind of like official reports in the documentation that you you got or is it all handwritten it's, as a it's secondary yeah, it's, report it's, personal material it's much more than that. I don't think there's anything official. The only, from yeah. memory, the top of my head, the only official um, report or, or, or memorandum or anything that's that's retained in the files is the memo from Warren putting Swanson in charge of the Ripper case. Okay. Everything else is, you know, sort of personal notes. But mm. you know, the way I, the way I worked. I mean, looking again, talking about the Lillian Stanhope case, which is a great story. The whole story is written out by Swanson in his memorandum. But then I, I had to go and look at um, uh, newspaper reports, what yeah. was in the National Archives, all that stuff, just to sort of verify everything and take it further. I mean, Swanson writes in that case that um, she duped, she was a Liverpool showgirl, and she duped this chap, Edward Goddard, into marrying her. And then there was this sort of <laughs> big, big thing where um, she's, she's tried to sort of blackmail him and, and all this stuff. And I thought, well, how can I verify that? But when I looked in the National Archives, there is a, um, a, a record of the divorce between Goddard and Lillian. And I probably was the first person to look at that since it was filed. But yeah. again, it's verified everything that Swanson has said. And the witnesses, the witnesses to the to the marriage certificate, I got that. They bore out what he said. So it was really everything that he'd written, I didn't take at face value. I had to go and research it from scratch. Yeah. But, it, you know, I had the names and the dates that gave me the starting point, really. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, I was just wondering how, how, how you made head and tail of the, of the documents that you got and how you kind of went about writing the book. So, yeah, fascinating stuff, mate. I think the first thing that anyone has to do, really, be, certainly I know I recognise I was very, very lucky with the volume of family archive that's there. You, I don't know if anyone's ever had, had access to that sort of thing in this in this field. Um but it, the most important thing about anything, any research material, I think, is just getting into structure um, yeah. and then working with it rather than trying to make, you know, go ahead and then you find something that yeah. has to be applied to something you 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 wrote three years ago, for instance. Yeah, I did, I did have a few of that, to be honest. Um, I'd written quite a lot. And then by the time I got the last box from Neville, um, there were there were documents in there, which uh, I had to go and add more information back into the, the earlier chapters yeah. and stuff. So. But it's, it's it's imperative that you double check what what you've got, which well, I did. <laughs> which makes which makes the book stand out as well. The, the amount of detail and footnotes in that in the footnotes is amazing. It's a book in itself. I did have a chat with um, I did have a chat with Paul about the footnotes because initially I, I much prefer them at the bottom of each page. Uh, but but as you said, you know some of them aren't just sources; they're they're notes that give further information. And I just realised that if I put them at the bottom of the page, it'd be about an inch of text <laughs> at the mm. top of each page and the rest will be footnotes. It just wouldn't be, wouldn't be readable, really. Yeah. yeah but, I, had a, I had a similar problem with my work. So, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. I've actually read the books like that. <laughs> well, for the sort of book that, that uh, Adam was writing, you, you find that that happens an awful lot in academic text where 
you get three lines at the top of the page and the rest is a continuation of a footnote that started two pages <laughs> And one of the guiding rules is that if you're going to have a have footnotes that long, you should do your best to incorporate it into the text rather than have it as a footnote. Yeah. If you can't, then it has to go more sensibly at the back of the book because uh, otherwise you're just constantly interrupting the, the, the flow of the read. And doing a book of the size of Adam's, I think anybody who hasn't actually tackled writing a book... Uh, won't understand how incredibly difficult it is to write a book of that length. Uh, it's it's a and and that degree of detail and to actually hold that in your mind and know where you're going with it, even though you know that as you as Adam has just said, he by the time he got the last box from Neville, he had to go back and rewrite parts of the uh, at the beginning of the book. I mean, when you don't have the overall picture to start off with and you're, as you're researching, you're bringing out more and more information that may not be directly relevant to the bit that you're writing, but is relevant to something either before or after that bit. It's, and to hold all that together and to actually produce something at the end of it which makes sense uh, is extraordinarily difficult. And so I think that, that Adam has managed to produce what I think we'd all agree is a highly readable book. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's not the lightweight read that, uh, of, a, of a cheap novel, but it's, it, it's, uh, it flows very well. You keep turning pages. Uh, and, and that's a real... So it is really a... a Great tribute to Adam that he was able to do that. Uh, and also, I think it's something that anybody who approaches writing uh, a, uh, a biography of, of a policeman, but particularly of a Victorian policeman, uh, and to be honest, there, there's quite a lot of them that uh, deserve to have biographies written about them, uh, He's really set the bar for those books, and I, I, I don't say that lightly. I think it's uh, I, I can't think offhand of any police biography that is anything like it. I don't know if anybody else can, but um, just to make full use of the, the the source materials that Adam has done is, is terrific. No, I mean, for me, Paul, just to back what you're saying. So, sorry, Adam. That's uh, all. I just say thanks to Paul. That's all. That's all. I'll give him the tenor later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, just hell of just, a lot more than that, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to back you up, Paul. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is, it is a a uh, wait, weighty tome, as I say, um, but it's so easily readable. I do find it very easily readable. And as Adam pointed out, it's, it's so many levels to it as well. There's the personal level, there's the history of the Metropolitan Police, there's Swanson's career in there, everything. And, it, and it's just the way Adam's constructed it, it's like I say, it's just so easily easy to read. But it's not condescending either. And it's, it's every page has got a wealth of information on. It's fantastic. It's, it's probably... And I don't say this easily either, Paul. It's probably the best book I've read. 
on 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 the subject in in terms of history of policing, um, and 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 in particular a specific police officer. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a very good book. Without getting into 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 the differences, but you have popular books about uh, about police officers, and then you've got the more academic. Uh, about, about uh, police and, and the history of uh, policing and, and detective work, and crossing the the bridge between the two and to produce a popular history uh, that kind is is really no easy task. It's no. I mean, I look looking just at the moment of things like uh, uh, Andrew Roberts' biography of Salisbury or Roy Jenkins' biography of uh, of Churchill, which are two equally weighty tones, um, and both are about individuals that were quite well known to the authors before they started writing books. Whereas Adam came into it with the same uh, same length, but about somebody that he had to learn about as he went along. And well, so that, now that's quite quite a quite a remarkable achievement no wonder it took so long well i think the, the, the main thing on swanson for me um was not tearing myself away but um being able to to look at him as a person and a and a, and a policeman outside of the ripper um tunnel yeah you know, that's, that's how everyone reading this i'm sure most people reading this are going to come to to it from that angle um and 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 i think to be honest that by the end by the towards halfway of of researching and writing it i, I just thought well you know what there's so much more out there than Jack River. um in, ter in terms of you know crime and history so so it's you know it is for me uh moving you know moving away from that that sort of two or three year period had to be done but it, you know the, the thing i liked about it um is that during the research is there's so many interesting characters, Williamson being one that I think do do deserve you know like a biography as well. So I've got quite a few on on the list. That I'm you know going to planning to sort of research and write about for follow up books. I don't know whether I go to the same detail as this one, but one thing I did think about was li uh, almost a literal continuation and doing a biography of uh, Frank Frost and doing the Life mm. and Times of an Edwardian Detective. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course, you'll be without the the plethora of uh, documents and information. Well, that, that's the thing. Isn't so it? that's going to be, in my opinion, that's going to be quite a one to research, though, isn't it? Do you think that's going to be a bit more difficult? Or do you think? It'll I think be it will way? be. Uh, absolutely, yeah. it will be. It will be. It will be difficult. Well, any, anything that that doesn't have this uh, wealth of family archive material is going to be. Yeah. It's not going to be. Yeah, easy, yeah. Is it? I'm not going to have no, the backup. No, there, you're but, right. And the the other thing, of course, is the the fantastic illustrations that you know the the, the photographs and things that the family have kept yeah. for that central yeah. section. I mean, you don't often see that that many varied. And and I was you know I was spoilt for choice because there's pictures of Donald with with his wife, and there's something like about twenty five photographs of them that I could have chosen yeah. uh, for the book. So it you know I do I do completely recognise I've been very lucky with the content for this and any future book is not going to have that that degree of uh, of uh, wealth or wealth of information really
Well, the, the, the thing is, is that also with uh, the Swanson book uh, is, is that you are, when you look at the other policemen, uh, like Frost, for example, you don't, you won't have the wealth of, of family detail, but this is the first book that has been written of this kind that has utilized family detail. There must be uh, families out there who have, whose descendants have kept stuff, but never appreciated that it's of any interest. Sorry, the, the other thing is that looking at the, uh, the Ripper case, isn't just about the Ripper. It's not just about who the Ripper was or anything of that kind. It's not even just all about the murders. You have to read around it. And one of the big things is that we talk about Anderson, Swanson, Sir Basil Thompson, all these other people, but we don't know anything, or we did up until you write him, we didn't know very much about any of them. So how are we supposed to judge what these people were like? So it's it's doing that research into these people. All brightens and widens the subject area, if, even if it is only Jack the Ripper, but people should read the book uh, and find out about one of their primary sources. It, it all helps with our overall understanding, Paul. Absolutely. Every day's a school day and we're always finding something new, and this book adds to it massively. <laughs> the same situation applies to your book, is, is that, again, it's... it's oh the life of a policeman what were they what was, what was their like we, we, we read about the on the beach that's covering bodies and all the rest of it but we don't know anything about them but oh, we, that's nice of you say Paul thank you I think as we said we said at the start as well because of when Swanson's career was it kind of bridges the time when you know you've got the early policing you know, with the cutlass training to, um, you know, fingerprints uh, being yeah. introduced towards the end of his career. So it's really a key time in the development of policing. Yeah, sure. it's, 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 it's going into the golden age of Scotland Yard. Um, so, as you say, it's, it's a bridge between the first days and the golden age. Mm. Um, very much so. So, um, it's, I'd say he's one of the first of the superstar detectives. I probably would go that far. Um, but um, looking at his record and what he achieved, he'd be considered that. He, he was a very important policeman of his age. But then the next choice that we have, which is Frank Brooks, is a superstar detective of his name. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So which, there is that bridge. Which, which reminds me, Adam, conversation. I do. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do you wonder, uh, John and Paul about that? I'll, I'll, I'll let you, Adam. It's a better story coming from you. I can't remember how it came up. I think, I don't know exactly how it happened. We we were, um, there was Neil, myself, and, and someone else who should remain nameless um, in, the, in the pub, which is just along from St. Patrick's Cemetery where Mary Kelly's buried. Um, and we were just, I don't know, we, we were talking about, I think, a conference that was going on shortly around that time yeah. anyway um we we were the only three people in the pub as far as i can recall and there was a young lady serving and i really don't know how the conversation came up i think neil struck up the conversation anyway and came over all excited it turned out that she was a descendant of frost she said oh my i think my 
was it a great granddad or great uncle or someone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in the police. He was in the police. His name was Frost or Frost or something like that. Anyway, yeah. so um, this was a long. She time spelt ago, it out, it? didn't she? If I remember rightly, she actually spelt the name out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, I took an email address and, and sort of dropped a line. I've never heard anything back. Oh, shame. Oh, so shame. That, yeah, that could have been. That, could have <laughs> that been was my first thought when you were discussing, when you mentioned Frost. I think, oh, my word, yeah, the barmaid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there are, you're quite right, Paul, there are there are people out there with material that, you know, just, just don't know that anything should be done with it, really. I know that... Um, um, Am I right thinking there's quite there's there's quite a bit of, of Monroe material? Uh, I think we 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 pretty much know what the Monroe material is, but if there's a lot more out there, um, yeah, I mean there, there might be quite a bit. He, again, he hasn't been thoroughly researched, so no. of what stuff is floating around in India, for example, <laughs> mm. where. Well, set up that missionary establishment so there might be stuff out there about about his activities out there and and things so he is one of those people who is deserving of a of a book like uh like yours there you go dropping another hint adam well but this is it i've got so many on there i also like um colonel magendi <laughs> the, the the explosive expert i think it's a fascinating guy and i think that would make a good yeah book and so would uh, dr bond would make an excellent book um but i think i've already started working on the next one and that's um just it, it's i've already done the basic research in the family and that's a biography of baxter um there's a large file in hackney archives which is basically a bequest from his son frank um none of, none of the children married or, or had any had any offspring so it was just deposited at the archives and I, re- I I accessed that for my article I think back in 2005 um, but there's an enormous amount of stuff and I only really made notes of things that were um, of interest to the article but I'll go back and look at that and, and see what else see what else is there again it's personal letters and photographs and things so and I think Baxter will, obviously with his career and the cases that he was involved with I think would make a really interesting read and again, it's somebody who had a job that, uh, that I, as far as I'm aware, there aren't too many books about the, the local coroners and, and people of that kind. They didn't seem to be individuals to, to generate sufficient interest. Mm. We have loads of biographies about, uh, about journalists like Lincoln Springfield and William McHugh and all of that. We've got loads of stuff about the politicians of the time, uh, particularly the, the, the better-known ones. But when it comes down to the ordinary people, like the policeman and the coroner and, and the, the, the local doctors and everything, they seem to have had their most... Yeah. No, nobody's written about they, Those on the front line, as it were, Paul. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I think it's the same, you know, all throughout history, you know, fields of history, though, isn't it? You know, the amount of biographies on kings and queens, but the ordinary people are the ones who probably lived, you know, more interesting lives, and uh, they there's very little on them. Well, exactly. Uh, even the even the Jack the Ripper murders. I mean, it's getting better now, but it's all been very largely. Uh, built around who Jack the Ripper was 
with a result that the history of the period and uh, and or the history of the crimes in the area and uh, what it caused and led to and resulted and all, all of that sort of stuff's barely been looked at, particularly by academics. You just ignore it almost ex exclusively. And yet it's uh, the, the, the cr these crime, uh, big crime things that go on are, are really important in terms of just ordinary history of the ordinary man in the street. Well, I think getting the um, getting the, the the personality of of these people that are involved in the uh, in the case one way or another more widely known or and understood, I think, is really important because you know you, you'll recall Paul that when Bruce Robinson's book came out, calling um, Swanson Mister Inky Fingers or something in them lines, yeah. he, Bruce was able to completely um, put. Swanson in the frame as a, as, you know, as as someone who was doing all this undercover stuff, but he had no understanding of, of Swanson as a person. Um, I don't know. I'm not saying that Bruce would have not gone down that line on Swanson if it if my book had been available. But uh, you know, it's very easy for him to do that without having any any um, evidence that that he was completely incorrect. But yeah, I think uh, I think Bruce said something along the lines of Swanson. Being unable to look at uh, an inkwell without fishing it for lies. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, and as far as I am aware, there is no that that is a completely unfounded suggestion. I don't know that Swanson was uh, you know, a habitual liar, or I mean, no doubt told a lie at some point in his life. I mean, mm. Hardly anybody could say that they haven't done that, uh, except me. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and that, that's a lie for a start. <laughs> that was actually the point that I was making. <laughs> uh, but but uh, no, he, he, that that was something that was said. <laughs> Whether your book was made any difference? That, I don't, no, I would doubt it because. That was the, uh, the the role that he wanted to cast everybody in. Hmm. But when we look at people, I, I think people like... I was reading quite recently, for example, about Sir Charles Warren, is that the person who appointed him uh, to go and fight in, uh, you know, at Spee and Cop uh, was suffering from uh, dementia and thought that Swan, uh, thought that Warren was somebody else. Oh, God. Which explains why Warren was completely out of his depth going to, the, to taking on that responsibility. And it just casts Warren's sort of situation there, if that's true, <laughs> in a slightly different light to the one that he was a totally incompetent individual. Yes, he was incompetent for that particular task. He wasn't trained for it. So, therefore, he shouldn't have been sent there. So, But it wasn't his fault. It was the guy who sent him. It was mainly... I can't remember offhand. But so all of these people have a... Have have uh, have a good reason to, to have biographies written. We'll just hope it won't take six years in between each publication, though, Paul. Well, it, I haven't got many years left to get many books out. 
Well, <laughs> it, you know, the, the, the size that you write, the books take six years to read them. It's No, it, it, that's true, but it's uh, the others are going to be quicker, I think. I just wish I had the energy to even contemplate it. I, I don't seem to have that energy anymore. Do you think it's down to, do you think it's a subject matter, though? Would you be more inspired if you had something that really grabbed you? No, I don't think so. I just just think now that I've reached an age where uh, not sitting back and doing nothing, just sitting back and uh, not having that kind of pressure. Overseeing the people doing things and writing nice forwards for them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that would be, be, be quite good. Uh, the, since you don't get paid for it, it doesn't make you, help you make a living. But uh, <laughs> well, you got the reflective glow, though, Paul. That's that's something. Oh yes, I mean, I'm just quite happy to bask in the grandeur of somebody else's book. That I've never had a problem about that at all. <laughs> uh, it's ne- <laughs> never bothered me if people want to correct my my work, if, <laughs> just as long as it makes it better. <laughs> no, I think I, I I'm. It's just little daunting to to take on a big project. I mean, there are a few projects that I've sort of looked at and played around with, which I I uh, would like. I was very impressed with the, as you know, with the uh, annotated Walter Dew. Mm. Uh, so I wouldn't have minded having a look at uh, annotated doing a similar book about somebody else. But you know, well, you got a little matter of the A to Z to. Uh to get your part at the moment yes yes indeed which uh, is taking up an inordinate amount of time <laughs> that actually is, is pretty much i think it's fast getting to be a full-time job it's it it's just keeping up with the uh, with the wealth of new information and new sources and new discoveries and and stuff and it's not necessarily big stuff it's just little details about the people who were involved and and everything. Uh, four of us working on the book. It's still still coming along. Good. Well, five of us with you. Well, that's it. Just don't don't leave me too much editing to do at the end of the uh, end of the day. So I'm relying on your perfect writing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I'm not convinced I, about you relying, <laughs> relying on, or, or indeed, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start wrapping up now, uh, gents. That's okay. Going okay, to go in a few minutes. Um, so, uh, for for any listeners um, who you know have enjoyed this taste of Swanson and want a bit more Swanson in their lives. Um, I know Adam is doing talks uh, every week on Facebook Live. So, Adam, do you want to mention how people can access those? Yeah, uh, well, I, I think it's quite. Uh, I'm quite enjoying it actually. It's, I had been booked before the uh, the current lockdown. I had been booked to give about a dozen talks of various aspects and and uh, cases, of his career, including the Freud and the next one, which will be the body snatching in Aberdeen. Obviously, with these being cancelled, uh, I've had the, uh, the talks prepared, so I've. I'm doing broadcasting those live on Facebook. There's a, a page called the Donald Sutherland Swanson book page. Uh, anyone goes there, you'll see usually an event 
uh, advertising the next one, and then and then I go live. Um, the date is on obviously on each event, so that's normally about four to five minute talk. Any questions can be put into the into the comments, and I, I pick those up and ask ask them. As long as I do the uh, the talk into the right page, <laughs> <laughs> which obviously made a mistake this coming week, but that's been really enjoyable. I've probably got about another three or four talks lined up. Um, they are if, if anyone misses them, they are recorded. Uh, and they appear on the page anyway. So, if anyone's missed any any of those presentations, you can go and look at the um, look at the recorded videos on those. Um, the Swanson book itself uh, is available in hardback, paperback, and Kindle. I think at Kindle it's it's four ninety nine at the moment. So um, head over to uh, Amazon, download it from there. Um, but that's it. You know, if anyone's got any questions on Swanson or any, you know, as I say, head over to uh, the Donald Sutherland Swanson Facebook page. Happy to answer any questions. Uh, I do also, from time to time, do a uh, on this day uh, post from uh, an aspect of Swanson's life or career. Uh, so that page is sort of updated fairly regularly. And uh, the other thing as well, Ripperologist Magazine, um, where you're going to be doing that article about the other Swanson marginalia. For yep. anyone who doesn't subscribe to that for whatever mad reason, how, how can they get copies? It, it's uh, uh, anyone who doesn't know of Ripperologist Magazine, it's um, it's the free um, electronic journal, which is uh, you have to subscribe, but it's free. Just go to ripperologist.co.uk. Um, you can subscribed on a very simple form there all we need is your email address and you'll be added automatically to the uh, the list for the net for each subsequent um issue the back issues from i think we're on 167 next time everything up to 165 i think is currently on the website for download um so yep and obviously if anyone's listening and they've got some ideas for an, an article of their own um, get in touch via the website we'd be very pleased to hear from you Perfect. Um, average page length is uh, issue length is how many pages? I think we um, will. The, the the basically the structure of the um, stru structure of the magazine is uh, we have four or five uh, original articles by by contributors, and then there's regular columnists that will uh, uh, provide something each each issue. Uh, Paul Begg will um, takes care of the the non-fiction book reviews each issue which is covering how many would you say paul 15 to 20 books each, each issue uh something like that although it's going to be fewer um for a while okay because uh, uh <laughs> i've actually had a chance to read something else and i quite <laughs> enjoyed just reading for pleasure <laughs> so uh, I'd like to try and fit in some some casual reading, and also, unfortunately, or fortunately, you can't do an awful lot of research when you're trying to read books for review. So that's it. So, well, so Paul, so Paul, um, Paul reviews the latest nonfiction books. David Green reviews the latest Ripper fiction. So, all in all, we we normally around the eighty to hundred pages. Um, of each issue, as I said, it's a PDF format, and there, if you subscribe, you'll be you'll be sent uh, a link when it when it's available to to download that issue. You can also go to the website. As I said, apart from the back issues, is there's um, some of Paul's book reviews. On I need to update the website to get the latest ones on there. Um, but yeah, it's um it's a really good it's a really good journal. It's been going since I think 1994. 
if I'm right. So, so several years, lots of uh, uh, material. Um, if you're looking at anything particular aspect, there's an index as well, which you can download. Um, and, I, and I think it's a fantastic resource. I'm not just saying that because I work on it, but if, you know, if, if people are looking for a particular bit of ripper material, um, the chances are that it, it's probably been covered in, in some issue of Ripologist over the years and definitely worth looking into those for, for, for research of your own. Oh, definitely. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a fantastic resource. resource. And uh, I think Paul's book reviews have saved me a fortune over the years because you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't need to read that. Yeah. Um, and of course, his book reviews aren't just ripper books. They, they, um, it's everything from Victorian true crime and even like general history uh as well um so uh yeah i think we'll uh we'll, we'll wrap it up there chaps so um thank you adam uh for joining us today and uh for thank you john this fantastic uh book um and also thank you neil and paul for your contributions thank you thank you john Cheers. and uh yeah hopefully um uh john menges will hopefully be back soon with another ripper cast but uh you may be hearing from me uh more in the future as well so uh excellent that's great thanks everybody